It is my pleasure to call upon our brother Josh Hodge of the book Road Ecclesia to deliver the second class speaking to our theme this weekend, How Thou Oughtest to Behave Thyself in the House of God. And our second class is entitled, The Pillar and Ground of the Truth. Brother Josh. Well, my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, it was the sons of Korah that said, My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth, for the courts of Yahweh. And this was a faithful family who desired more than anything else to be in those courts, to be part of the house of God. So much so that Psalm 84 says they are envious over a small bird, over a sparrow that made its nest in the house of God. Now this longing wasn't merely for the building itself, but for the fellowship with the brethren, for the protection from the world, for the comforts of the truth, for the love of God, and for the glorification of the deity. And really, this is our our theme together this weekend, isn't it? The theme of the house of God. And it's found in the chapters before us. If you look at 1 Timothy in chapter 3, reading from verse 14. There it says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. What things were these? These were the things he had previously written in chapter 1, 2, and 3. He says, But if I tarry long, these things have been given to you, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave or to conduct thyself in the house of God. But what is the house of God? We actually have a definition. Because it goes on to say, verse 15, which is... The ecclesia, the called out ones, the assembly, the congregation, it's the people that God dwells in. That forms the house of God. The ecclesia of the living God, it says, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, did you notice that it said living God? It didn't have to. But the point is, is that God dwells in living people. He's alive and he's active in our midst. And he's working with people that have taken on his spirit thinking. And if that's the God that we worship, then we ought to take on that same spirit and be alive, be vibrant in our ecclesias. And the pillar and ground of the truth. This is where God's truth flourishes in our midst, in the ecclesia, in the called out ones. Now as we consider the house of God throughout scripture, it occurs in a a number of places, but perhaps none better than Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, 
And there we learn that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone upon which the house is built. We learn that the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation for us through the scriptures which we read. And Ephesians 2 and 3 talks about this building of people. And it talks about how it's alive. It talks about it being fitly framed. How it groweth. That's a term which teaches us it's alive. It groweth unto a holy temple. It's builded together. Again in Ephesians 3, it's rooted and grounded. More language of a building that's alive. The breadth and the length, the depth and the height. Ephesians speaks of this same building. And you know, in in those two chapters, it says that that building exists for a habitation of God. It says in chapter 3 that Christ may dwell in our hearts. And that's a wonderful thing to think about, that God is here in our midst. We create that building for God based on his truth and his ways, because it's the pillar and ground of the truth. But for a house to function smoothly, for a house to be alive and vibrant and wholesome and healthy, it has to be upon the sound principles of God. There's a a lovely passage in Proverbs 24, verse 3. It says, through wisdom is an house builded. By understanding, it is established. And so we're going to talk about three principles this afternoon. Three principles and three aspects of God's wisdom, of his understanding. And those are found in chapter 2 and 3. The first one is chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. It's all about prayer. We have chapter 2 in verse 8 to 15. It's about roles of men and women who work in the house of God. And finally, we have chapter 3 in verse 1 to 14, which is all about leadership. The bishops and the deacons and those that serve within the ecclesia. And here's three aspects of God's wisdom that are a part of ecclesial life. God's direction for us, how we ought to behave ourselves in the house of God. And it's the wisdom of Yahweh. And through wisdom, the house of God, which is the ecclesia of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth is built. And by understanding that it is established. So let us begin then, chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. It says there in verse 1, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Our communication with God, our our prayers to God is fundamental. Acts 2 in verse 42, talking about the believers who had just been baptized in the Jerusalem Ecclesia, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, 
breaking of bread and prayers. It was an important part of the ecclesia. Now it says that prayers be made for all men. It's, it's the Greek word anthropos. It's referring to mankind, to humans. Both men and women are included in this term. But I'd suggest to you that God isn't asking us to arbitrarily and universally pray for every person that resides on earth, but to pray for those in our scope of reference without partiality, remembering that he is God and he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, whether it's a Jew or Gentile, whether it's a bond or free, a a male or female, or in this context, a king or subject. You see, sometimes we can prejudice certain people in our own minds. And here in 1 Timothy 2, what might that have been but the kings? Because it says in verse 2, pray for all men. And it specifically points out for kings and all that are in authority. God is asking us to consider those who we know. And we might cast down in our minds, thinking they're not worthy to be prayed for. But God says, pray for them too. For kings. Kings are people we would know pretty well. People in authority. Timothy would have. We know the leaders of our country. They are in the news. And they make decisions that affect our lives. And God says, pray for them. Do you know who the emperor was at the time that this was written? Whether the early date or the latter date, as Brother Darrell has suggested. It was Nero. Not an easy person to pray for. And if you take the the latter date when this book was written, two-thirds of Rome had just been burnt to the ground. And there were rumors that We're going around saying that it was Nero who started the fire, and so Nero wanted to divert the attention to others. And so who did he divert it to but this new group called the Christians? And the Christians were gathered, and they were slaughtered. The Christians were the people that were torn apart by dogs. The Christians were burnt alive as human torches. And Paul says to Timothy, pray for him. Peter says, honor all men, honor the king. Paul says, pray for all men, pray for kings. Certain things in the truth are difficult. They go against what we might naturally want to do. You know, we live in an age where God is blasphemed In the universities, God is eliminated from the schools. God is challenged in the very structure of society. He's mocked in the workplace. And in many cases, it's the rulers of the land that guide and make these decisions that influence all of this to happen. And the last thing we want to do is pray for them. But even Christ says, Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. 
Now we do this for two reasons. You see in verse 2 it says, That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now the word quiet is talking about an inward an outward peace. It is a contrast to outward tumult. Whereas the word peaceable, you can think of it as the opposite of inward strife. And we ask for this quiet and peaceable life, not just that we avoid hindrance, but that we might live it in godliness and honesty. The word godliness is eusebia. It's most often used in this epistle. Eusebia, godliness, godlikeness, reverence to our God, and honesty. Living a life of integrity, of, of purity in our manner of life, recognizing our position before God. This is the type of life we desire to live. So let us join together this, this weekend and beyond to pray for our leaders that we might continue to worship in the manner that we do so now. Verse 3 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And, and really this is the transition verse to the second reason why we pray. Because did you notice what it said about God? It's God our Savior. We normally think of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we, as our Savior. But ultimately, it's God. God is our Savior. And when we think about it, God has chosen us. We are his elect. And we're thankful for that. And he doesn't show partiality when he has chosen us. And so we ought not to show partiality whom we pray for, those that might enter our life, that need our prayers. God wants all men, it says, verse 4. And that word, all men, is the same word, all men, of verse 1. Those that are to be prayed for. So God wants all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. And kings and leaders too. Wasn't it Paul that almost converted Agrippa? You see, because mankind is separated from God. Without truth, they're alienated from the promises. They need to come to the truth. They need repentance. And this idea of the truth is so important to our community, isn't it? To God's house. Paul uses it there in verse 4, but it's also found in verse 7. Paul preaches and he says, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. And he's a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, which is the word verity. And isn't it the house of God, the ecclesia of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, is where the truth resides, where it's elevated and promoted. And there's no greater witness no greater evidence that God wants all men to be saved than what it says in verse 6. Who, Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. 
because it was the Lord Jesus Christ that would bring man to God. We skip verse 5 because notice what it says there. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we ask the question, why does it say one God, one mediator? Have you thought about that before? One God and one mediator. It's important, isn't it? It's part of the first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And it's because man is separated from God. But God is a unity in his thinking, in his character, in his spirit. I want you to turn with me to Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, because this concept of the mediator and this concept of one God occurs again, and it helps explain what this means. Now, the context of Galatians 3, we already looked at in class 1. The law highlighted man's sin. It highlighted that man was separate from God because of his sins. It also talks about how the law would be done away with when Christ, the promised seed, came. These are two covenants, the new covenant and the old covenant. But the new covenant was the covenant that removed sins that the old covenant highlighted. But they are both brought about by a mediator. And see what it says in verse 20. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. What does that mean? A mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. And you don't have a mediator. You don't have someone who brings a covenant if there's no need for it. But there was a need because there were two. There was man and there was God. God is one. He is a unity. And he wants man to be brought to him. To be united in character and purpose and understanding. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ came to remove sin. Through the faith of individuals. And through taking on his name. And that is why we have Verse 28. Have a look at verse 28. Because when we take on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism, it says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female. Ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And what a wonderful thing that is. And so... We ought to pray that all men are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, that they might be one with God, for he is one. And so a main point from this section on prayer, it's fundamental to communicate with our Father in heaven, without distinction, without partiality, in the house of God. God's house should be a house of prayer. And a key lesson that comes from this. We must pray 
for the leaders of our land. That we can live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, we must recognize that we are afforded harmony with our God through Christ. And this same harmony we should desire that others have as well. This is the wisdom of Yahweh. And it's through wisdom that the house of God, the ecclesia of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth is built. And by understanding that it is established. Well, we'll now move on to the next section, the next aspect of God's wisdom, how we are to conduct ourselves in the house of God. And it starts in verse 8. It speaks of roles. So we've looked at prayer, but who is to pray? Verse 8 says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere. And it's important to mention, brothers and sisters, that word men is different than the word men of verse 1 and verse 4. It's it's a word which means man as distinct from woman. Males. And where are they to pray? It says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere. Everywhere, And the context is the house of God. It's talking about the public prayer where believers are gathered together, much like we are now, to form the ecclesia of living God. It's not referring to the private prayer. Now, men are to pray everywhere, and there's two aspects to how they are to pray. It says, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And prayers were to be genuine. But notice that it was put in the negative, almost as if it may have been happening at that time. And surely it would have. It would have been difficult to pray for Nero without wrath, to pray for the leaders that were persecuting your brethren, that were killing them. And without doubting, our prayers have to be given knowing that God will answer them according to how he knows his best, according to his divine will. But that was without wrath and doubting. That's talking about the inner man. Brother Alfred Nichols says, an attitude of body implies an attitude of mind. And so we'll notice that they were to do so lifting up holy hands. It seems to be an allusion back to the Old Testament where they lifted up their hands, a sign of spiritual thinking. And there's many prayer positions in Scripture. Hands uplifted, standing in respect, sitting meditatively, kneeling in humility, looking up. And one we're probably most familiar with is bowing our heads. But it was this outward man that was a reflection of the inward man. And our prayers have to be without wrath and in faith. And so as we pray for a dispute to be solved, as we pray for the leaders of our country who would mock our God, as we pray for maybe the young people that are struggling, as we pray for the brotherhood to remain pure in doctrine and practice, as we pray for the unity of the brotherhood, as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, let us do so with that genuine spirit and with the eye of faith.
And it tells us, brothers, of the massive responsibility we have to set our lives straight, to focus our minds above, to voice in our prayers that which is edifying for all, to direct our words to God in reverence, to express our faithful thoughts appropriately and according to the specific occasion at hand, and as best as possible, to not wander into the lethargic cliches and generalizations that are unfit for the prayer at hand. Because as we pray, know this, the word holy, there in verse 8, occurs seven other times. One of them is very similar to this context, but three of them describe our God, and three of them describe the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we pray, we are to be as God and as the Lord Jesus Christ. What a huge responsibility that is. Now, verse 10, verse 9 says, In like manner also. The following verses are direct comparisons, a flow of thought, necessary to be read together. Complementary principles. And we had suggest to you that the phrase, an attitude of body implies an attitude of mind, is applicable here as well. There is the outward man, which is to be a reflection of the inward man, or the inward woman, as we will find. You see, verse 9 says, in like manner also, that women adorn themselves. And it's going to give a list of how they are to adorn themselves. But verse 10 says, but which becometh women professing godliness. That is the inward man right there. What they profess. Professing is a strong word. It means to promise. Most of the time it's used of God's promise to us. And the woman was to promise godliness. She was to have this conviction. Godliness is the word theosebia. It's very similar to the word godliness in verse 2 of a life that we all try to live with reverence and respect. And so what the woman was to wear was only a reflection of the inward man. So what was the woman supposed to wear? What is she supposed to adorn herself with? Specifically, meeting with others coming to the house of God. Well, it says, with modest apparel. The word modest apparel means well-arranged, seemly, modest. This is all about the standard of God. Conforming to his standard. And so, propriety before God is to be adopted in what is worn. And then it says, with shamefacedness. Now, this is a, a unique word. It just occurs one other time. And if you look it up, it, it means a sense of shame or honor, modesty, bashfulness, reverence. Hebrews twelve twenty eight is the only other occurrence, and it means to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, and it's the word reverence is the, is the same Greek word. And when you take that into consideration, it seems to be all about the position, the recognition of God in our position before him. It's an attitude 
of knowing where God is and where we stand. And so there is to be a position before God that is to be adopted, one of humility. And then there's sobriety, a soundness of mind, it means, self-control. The, the related word is an adjective, and it, it means to be sane in one's senses, curbing one's desires and impulses. This is about being wise in how we adorn ourselves. Not going with our, our natural desires and our tendencies. And so prudence before God is to be adopted in how we adorn ourselves. And finally, it says, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. That's all about the riches and the opulence of the world. And the rich are the the trendsetters, aren't they? The force behind the movements that are empty, self-absorbed fashions consumed by one's own image rather than the image of the Elohim. It's all about the progression of the world, how they like to progress and display themselves. And Paul says to Timothy, that is to be avoided. The progression of the world is to be avoided. But it's not enough to profess godliness by our intentions, nor is it enough to dress in godliness by his standards. But we must also express godliness by our works. All are required according to the scriptures. Because have a look at verse 10. The women were to adorn themselves based on that inner conviction of verse 10. But it ends with, with good works. All are required. In the eyes of God. And then we move on to verse 11. It says, Let the the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. The word silence is found in Acts 22 in verse 2. Referring to a quiet and attentive audience listening to a presenter. And contrary to some beliefs today, men and women are different. They are different physically, they are different emotionally, and they are given different roles. I'm reading a book right now by Brother Islip Collier. He wrote a biography on Robert Roberts, and he tells a story. Robert Roberts had traveled over to America 1888, specifically Buffalo, actually. And he wanted to make contact with a man he had made contact with a few years ago. It doesn't say if it was a brother or not. But regardless, he, he decides to travel to what he thought was this, this man's house. And, and it was pouring with rain that day, and he knocked, no answer. So he knocked more vigorously, and, and still no answer, and Happy to wait it out, because it was pouring with rain outside, he sat under the veranda until, well, he thought he heard some chopping of wood and some, some footsteps in the house, so he got, got up and knocked with such force that Brother Islip says, even a partially deaf man could hear this knock, and apparently this man was partially deaf, but still no answer. So what did Roberts do? He, he decides to go around the back of the house Climbs under some barricade and, as Brother Islip says, a horse eyed him suspiciously. 
Now he found a door that was unlatched, and he, he enters through the door. And I quote, going forward, he found himself in a narrow room with garments and domestic utensils and what he described as orderly disorder. Now, most men will understand this apparently contradictory phrase. Nothing is stored away in such a manner to satisfy a woman's sense of order, but everything is ready at hand, much more ready than if it would be if a woman were to tidy up, says Brother Islip. And what is Brother Islip's point at this time? Well, except to say that men are different than woman, women in this regards. Although it's, it's a fairly simplistic story, and uh, perhaps not entirely true in the day and age which, with which we live. I know many brethren who are quite tidy. But nevertheless, Brother Islip's point was men and women are different. And just to finish the story... Brother Robert still hadn't found the man yet, so he, he searched room by room until he came across to this very dimly lit room. Now, he couldn't really see, but it seemed to be the kitchen, and there was a sofa against the wall. And so groping around, he, he, he seems to think that there's a man on the sofa. And so he feels around until he finally found what was a man's nose. And this man suddenly... Startled, wakes up, and the story ends that this man profusely apologized for not being ready for this surprise visit of Brother Roberts. And I suppose today that uh, it would be quite a bit different. We'd think that Brother Roberts would have to apologize. Well, there we go. A, a story by brother, on Brother Roberts, one of our pioneer brethren. But when we come together in the Ecclesia of God, the, the principles behind roles are important. The world might mock us for them, but they're divine. They deal with that which is spiritual, heavenly, and holy. And Paul gives two very important reasons. And the first reason happened before sin. You see what it says, verse 13. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And it's remarkable, isn't it? The reason given was before sin even entered the world. And so the principle is timeless. It's indisputable. It's not about culture. It was Adam who received and was made responsible for the obedience of God's commands at the first. And no doubt would have to pass them on. So the first reason was before sin, and the second reason was for sin. Have a look at verse 14. And Adam was not deceived. He knew very much what he was doing when he partook of the fruit. But the woman being deceived was in transgression. Brother Alfred Nichols says, The emotional balance of her nature which enabled her to exercise that sweet and beneficent influence also allowed her to be beguiled. And when we consider the principles here, we recognize that man is to uphold what he failed to do, to lead, to teach, and to direct. And the woman is to uphold what she failed to do, to act in subjection to the man. And if man and woman can uphold these commands of God, it will create a beautiful, beautiful, 
and harmonious relationship within the ecclesia and within marital life. And while these two principles have very practical implications for how our ecclesias are operated and our lives run, it's all a reflection of something greater, isn't it? Which is another reason why we should maintain these divine principles and values. You see, it says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul says, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. He says to the ecclesia, the group of believers, you are a chaste virgin to your husband Christ. But it's all drawing on the same story in Genesis because it says, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And he was warning them of another gospel that could be preached, another Christ, it says, another spirit. And it's the ecclesia that is to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Now we move on in verse 15, because it says, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with sobriety. Have you thought about that verse before? What it, what it means to be saved in childbearing? Now, there are several interpretations of this particular verse and that particular phrase. And the first one is she will be saved by having children. But this would imply that having children itself is a meritorious act. That there's merit in the act itself. But it also puts a condition on some, like the unmarried or the childless wife, and puts them at a disadvantage. And more importantly, it goes against other scriptural teachings, like 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul actually discourages marriage to, to some degree in that context. The other theory is she will be saved by means of the childbirth. That is to say... The birth of Christ, who is described in Genesis 3.15 as the seed of the woman. But notice verse 15, it says, she shall be saved. It's the future tense. And Eve was around in Genesis 3, and Christ had come, died, resurrected, and ascended to his father long before this was written. And contextually, it would be odd to single out a woman as a beneficiary of Christ, any more than a man. Man and a woman are both equal beneficiaries of the salvation from Christ. And it doesn't make Paul's point any stronger because it doesn't have any implications for the women in contrast to men with perhaps the exception of Mary and, and certainly that isn't the point. Well, there's a third reason. She will come safely through childbirth. We'd suggest that's not a good understanding either because the word safely in the context here is talking about salvation. Verse 4 has it, who will have all men to be saved. It's the same word, but there it's talking about salvation. Besides the fact that there are women who do not meet the criteria of verse 15, faith and love and holiness and sobriety, who do come through childbearing safely and there are some women who no doubt adhere these principles and don't come safely through. 
So the last option which we'll suggest to you, brothers and sisters, is that she will be saved by the way of her childbearing. That is, not by the way of public ecclesial work or usurping a man's place, but by dedicating her life to the nurture of the young. Now, while childbearing is in reference to giving birth itself, to give birth to a child really means to become a mother as well and to inherit all those responsibilities associated with that. And having a child allows her to uphold that faith and love and holiness and sobriety. And it fits the previous context with Eve. Because Eve, or the woman, was deceived and usurped the leadership position which led to the sin, and thus death. But when given a child, or the responsibility of helping to raise young, she's given a responsibility, a commitment, a connection with a child that is so powerful and full of energy, it puts the woman in a position to adhere those principles. And there's no more important work than raising a godly seed, is there? Because what can happen is 1 Timothy 5. Paul actually encourages the younger widows to get married and to bear children lest they become, it says, idle, tattlers and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. And children would help mitigate that problem. I suppose some would say that Sister Hannah and I haven't hearkened to Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply, yet. Uh, But I I do happen to work at a place with lots of children, CHC, a Christadelphian school, and many a time I count them as my own. But what you see there as well is sisters and mothers who dedicate their lives and live out this verse in verse 15. And it's an inspiring thing. But it also fits Genesis 3, which is the context as well. Because if we refer to Genesis 3, brothers and sisters, it says in verse 16, Unto the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And there we have all the responsibilities of the woman and the roles in the ecclesia. There we see that if the man is to rule over her, then he is to be the leader and the teacher. And she is to submit to that. But she also has a responsibility of bringing forth the children. But more than that, we notice in the next verse, to Adam it was said, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it in all the days of thy life. Why would God put those two things like that unless there was a responsibility for the man to provide for the family and a responsibility for the woman to raise the family? You see, because those two words, sorrow, are the same word. One relates to the woman bringing forth children and raising children, and one refers to the man providing for the family. The point isn't just that they raise children, though, is it? Because it's supposed to be in faith and love and holiness with sobriety. And you know what's special about that phrase, faith and love? We find it in the previous chapter, 
verse 14. The Lord Jesus Christ had faith and love. And why did he have faith and love? Verse 14. The faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus, chapter 1, verse 15, came into the world to save sinners. Isn't that amazing? Christ adopted faith and love and he saved sinners. And the woman is being asked to adopt faith and love and save her children. Save the young in the ecclesia. But what it really is, is a reflection of her groom, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the man, of her husband. And thus in raising children and saving them, she is the opportunity to, to mirror the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a, a key a main point in this section regarding brothers' roles specifically we have another slide about sisters' roles. It says it is the brother's responsibility to pray publicly and to teach in the house of God. And a key lesson, specifically for brothers, they must take on this responsibility enthusiastically and unconditionally adopt into their lives, whether in the ecclesia or in the homes. And for sisters regarding brothers' roles, sisters are to submit and learn in silence, adopting humility in spirit, in dress, and in works. They are to empower within the hearts of other sisters this submissive spirit and garner in the hearts of men the will to lead as members in the house of God. And a main point regarding sisters' roles it is the primary responsibility of sisters to raise children in the Lord as a member in the house of God. And this responsibility must be embraced wholeheartedly in the raising of one's own children or by influencing and educating the young who reside in the house of God. The power of example should never be dismissed as one of the greatest teaching tools. And the lesson for brothers about sisters' roles, brothers must champion and be a guardian for wives and mothers to dedicate their lives to child-rearing, a work unparalleled in the house of God. In this last chapter, brothers and sisters, we're going to just touch on a few brief points. But it's regarding leadership, the last aspect of God's wisdom. For this is the wisdom of Yahweh. And it's through wisdom that the house of God, the ecclesia of living God, the pillar and ground of the truth is built, and by understanding that it is established. So notice verse 1, it talks about the bishops. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And in verse 8, likewise must the deacons be grave. So we have bishops and deacons discussed here, and I'd suggest to you there are two distinct, identifiable groups within the ecclesia. In fact, Paul says in verse 1 of Philippians 1, he introduces himself and then says, to those at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Two distinct groups there. And if we consider the word bishop, from verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless. And we look at how it's used in the New Testament, and we look at 
what a bishop does. In other words, the verb. We can learn a lot. Because God is actually described as a bishop or doing the work of a bishop. For he hath visited, it says, and redeemed his people. And the word visit there is the verb form of bishop. And we learn that bishops are to be redeemers of their brethren from death. Moses did the work of a bishop. And we learn that bishops are to be deliverers of their brethren from sin. The Ephesian elders were bishops. And we learn that bishops are to nourish their brethren by the word. To be defenders of the doctrine. Disciples, generically. We learn that they are to be visitors of their brethren who are sick. And finally, Christ. We learn that bishops are to be guardians of their brethren's lives. What a wonderful responsibility that bishops have. Now, when you look at deacons, deacons is a very generic word, but it does seem to be used here as a specific group. A deacon, if you were to look it up, it it means servant, one who executes the commands of another. And so bishops, or uh, deacons, were probably the bishop's assistants. And while bishops are servants... And bishops could be deacons as well. Deacons aren't necessarily bishops. So I'll give you an example of how this word is used. John 12, 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be, my deacon be. It is used of every follower of Christ in that manner. So we must be talking about something different here in 1 Timothy 3. And we have a similar list for deacons. We're not going to go through it other than highlight the key words. Deacons are to be preachers, to strengthen and comfort the brethren, to distribute the funds, to care for the widows, to minister the word, and to give life. But it's important to note that as overseers, which is what a bishop is, Overseer, a presider over the ecclesia, and a deacon, there were qualifications that had to be met. And that's what the whole chapter is about, the qualifications for a bishop and a deacon. Some are put in the positive. Look at verse 2. They must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober. Those are the things they are to do. Some are put in the negative. Verse 3, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy. Some are individual responsibilities. Verse 3, patient, brawler, not covetous, specific to the individual. But then some have a family responsibility. You see verse 4, one that ruleth well, his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Or verse 11, for the deacons, even so must their wives be grave. But what does that word rule mean, verse 4? Because verse 5 says, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the ecclesia of God? It's associated with the elders in chapter 5 that rule well in in labor, in word and doctrine. But it's also this word up here on the screen, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12, 
See, it says, and we beseech you, brethren, know them which labor. That's a word which means to be tired and exhausted with wearisome effort among you and are over you. That's our word rule in the Lord and admonish you. And there is a response which is to be had by the membership. They are to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. There was a responsibility to know, to care, and to listen to the bishops, to the elders, to the overseers in the ecclesia. Do you know what else it's associated with? Look at verse 5 again. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the ecclesia of God? See that transition? The word take care is only used in one other context. It's Luke 10, verse 34 and 35. The good Samaritan who had compassion and took care of the certain man who needed his help. And that's really the point of being a bishop and an overseer, isn't it? To look for the needs and welfare of the ecclesia. And so a main point in this section of leadership, the responsibility to both do and not to do what God has outlined must first be promoted and exemplified in our personal lives, in our familial lives, before taking on leadership and service roles in the house of God. It is a good work to be a bishop and deacon, and with it comes a great responsibility to admonish, to guard, to care for, to love, and to bring life to both those in the house of God and the principles which constitute the house of God. And the membership must recognize the eldership, esteeming them very highly with love, submitting to those who tirelessly work amongst us all. And this is the wisdom of Yahweh. And it's through wisdom that the house of God, which is the ecclesia of living God, the pillar and ground of the truth is built, and by understanding it is established. And Paul ends this section in verse 16 with a crescendo of thought, which answers why there is a house, what the house of God is, and what is its basis. Because it says, verse 16, without controversy, without a doubt, great is the mystery of godliness, of godlikeness, of reverence and respect. Paul says, do you want to know why we live our lives in godliness in the house of God? That mystery has been revealed. And it's the mystery there in verse 16. God was manifest in the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ came as a man. But he didn't just come as a man because he was justified in the spirit. He adopted the thinking of God. And then it says he was seen of angels because the grave could not hold a righteous man. And so he was resurrected. They are witnessed by the angels and the angelic beings to come in the future. And upon the basis of the power of the resurrection, he was preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, 
and received up into glory. And one day, if we can be like Christ, manifest the spirit of Christ, be resurrected as a new man in godliness with our thinking and behavior in the house of God, then we will appear with him in glory as the multitudinous Christ. So as brothers, as sisters, as Christadelphians, brethren in Christ, who make up that body of believers which form the house of God, let us take heed to the wisdom of God, the wisdom of prayer, the wisdom of roles, the wisdom of what it means to be leaders and followers for God, because he has outlined precisely how we ought to behave ourselves in his house and how we might be like him. For this is the mystery of godliness. And this conduct is based on the wisdom of Yahweh. And it's through wisdom that the house of God, which is the ecclesia of the living God, The pillar and ground of the truth is built, and by understanding that it is established. And may the house of God be a place where we desire fervently to be, so that we can say, as the sons of Korah, My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth, for the courts of Yahweh.